Astrid and Jamila would like to acknowledge that this podcast was made on the lands of the Wurundjeri and the Boon Wurrung people of the Kulin Nation. We pay our respects to elders past, present and emerging and we note that this sovereignty was never ceded. Hello and welcome to Anonymous Was A Woman. My name is Jamila Rizvi and today I am not joined by my co-host Astrid Edwards. She is taking a well-deserved break. But I am thrilled that you will be joined by someone just as extraordinary. My guest today is Grace Jennings Edquist, who is an Australian journalist who I've had the pleasure of working with in the past. Her new book is The Yes Woman, How to Reclaim Your Power by Finally Saying No. From school to career, in her appearance, her friendships and even everyday interactions, Grace was always anxious not to disappoint. Becoming a mum finally tipped her over the edge and she wound up in a mental health unit. Her attempts to be everything to everyone and to do it all perfectly had taken their toll. She could no longer avoid the truth, which was that she was chronically addicted to saying yes. But it turns out she's not the only one. Grace Jennings Edquist, welcome to Anonymous Was a Woman. We're so thrilled to have you and congratulations on your first book. Thank you and thank you so much for having me. I'm thrilled to be here. I know what an enormous achievement a first book is. There's so much time, sweat, tears for some people, divorces go into writing a first book. The Yes Woman is a wonderful read. I want to start by talking about you though, not just the issues explored in it. Are you a yes woman? I'm absolutely the original yes woman, or as I like to say now, I'm sort of a reformed-ish yes woman because I suppose writing the book really became almost a one-year-long or 18-month-long quest to stop saying yes constantly and kind of tackle some of those perfectionistic, people-pleasing traits that make up the yes woman. But, yeah, absolutely, it was my own struggle with those issues that drove me to start looking, going down this rabbit hole of research and speaking to people, which then became the book. So the idea of a yes woman, for you, it's not contained to work, is it? This is not like a Sheryl Sandberg Bible about how we need to stop saying yes all the time at work. You're taking a much more holistic view of where women tend to say yes and perhaps say yes too often. Yeah, absolutely. So I think in a broader sense, it's about how women can stop spending time and energy on the things they don't actually want to do in the first place. So that can be saying no at work to endless kind of so-called hope labour where you kind of do extra roles and unpaid tasks in the hope of a promotion. It can be saying no at home to unequal division of labour or, you know, the mental load as we've come to know it. It can also be just saying no to acquaintances who want to pick your brain over a coffee, beauty expectations, a whole range of things. And I talk in the book about saying no to not only kind of direct requests. So, you know, can you come to this thing? Can you come to this event? Will you do me this favour? Will you bring a plate along to the party? But also saying no to kind of implicit expectations, including societal expectations around beauty and dieting and things like that. So we might even without knowing it be saying yes to an expectation that we have to style our hair perfectly before we go to work. Yes to being the ones to organise the family holiday when it wasn't corona and we can go on holidays. So those sort of expectations as well. So definitely a wider holistic view of the whole pressure to say yes thing. So talk to me about these expectations a little bit more and where they come from, because I'm guessing that women aren't born biologically saying yes to things more than men. Where does that start? Such an interesting question, Jamila. And I, 
I think it's important to note that some people will try to tell you that women are naturally more agreeable and they're nicer and they're warm and fuzzy and that's why they're cut out to run the home uh, and do all that kind of thing. In particular, there was one scientist called Simon Baron Cohen who did all of this research where he got young infants, boys and girls, to look at either a mobile, which was said to represent the mechanical kind of cars and uh, engineering and everything. And then he got them to look at a human face. And then he recorded how long a little boy would look at each one versus the little girl. And I think he found that, you know, the girls looked for a millisecond longer at the faces and the men looked at this mobile. And then he sort of drew, basically people have extrapolated on that, drawing these broad conclusions like, oh, look, women are social and therefore they're better at looking after kids. Men must be better at kind of logical maths and rule, and they're cut out to rule the world. I'm, I'm very much drawing some broad brushstrokes here, and it was a bit more detailed than that. But basically, there are some people who will say, yes, women are the social ones. They are naturally geared towards making other people feel good. It comes naturally to them to be very self-sacrificing, to be warm, fuzzy and nice, and therefore they are actually born saying yes. But what I found when actually researching the book and looking at uh, talking to a whole lot of experts, uh, including psychologists, personality academics, those who have actually studied how personality traits are formed, is that women are not actually naturally nicer. It's basically that we're grooms. It's we're little girls from infancy to be agreeable and to put other people's needs first. So we have little girls sitting in the classroom who are basically socialised to not call out as much in class. If they do put up their hand, they're called on less. If they are called on, they're told off more for being loud or for being rude or for being bossy, whereas boys wouldn't be. So we have all of these insidious ways in which girls are kind of trained to become I call it nice with a capital N. So to become nice, which is not so much kind, which is a good trait, but nice, which is this kind of not rocking the boat, nice, which is being agreeable, nice, which is making other people feel comfortable, even when that might not make the girl or the woman feel comfortable. And I think this training in niceness is done, it's kind of a carrot and a stick approach. So some of it is if you're a nice girl and will kind of idolise you in media, you'll be like the nice saccharine mum that gets a lot of cuddles. You'll be like the Taylor Swift media darling. Back when Taylor Swift was a nice country girl who didn't talk about politics, I kind of prefer her persona now. <laughs> but then also on the flip side, and this is where it gets really terrifying, is when women aren't nice, I guess Helen Lewis has called them difficult women. When women do speak out, they speak out about politics, they speak out about injustices, they use their voice and they're immediately torn down. And we see this with the way that women like Juliette Gillard were treated in politics, the kind of gendered terms that were used around her speech whenever she said anything, really, because she was a politician and that does put you in the public eye. So we kind of tear women down when they do anything that uses their voice or has a view or opposes anyone. And that also, of course, enforces this idea that women have to be nice and have to say yes, ultimately. Talk to me about busyness, because if I think of the most objectively impressive particularly work-wise, women that I know, they are phenomenally busy people. They have an extraordinary output in terms of the work that they do. They seem to have this frenetic energy that is never ending in a way that mine ends very quickly. (laughs) And that busyness, I think, is something that I have always admired and perhaps even something that I've always strived for because it's been badge of honour to be busy. It's almost like it's a status symbol. So what do you think is the problem with women seeking to be busy all the time? That is such a good question because you're right. It's more than just saying being busy is always bad. Trying to do a lot of good things that well 
is always bad. And Jamila, you're actually an example of someone who does a whole lot of things and you do them really excellently. <laughs> but I think the issue is we have this kind of idea in our society, this myth that busy is best, and we kind of idolise you know, we run into someone, we say, how are you? And it's kind of this humble brag now, isn't it? To say, oh, you know, I'm good, good. You know what it's like, busy, crazy, can't sleep. I don't, just don't have any downtime. God, it's life's so crazy. And it becomes this competition about who's got more on. And sort of, I think it stems from this sort of capitalist idea that our productivity is our output, our worth, maybe like a bit of a Protestant work ethic thing around to work yourself to the bone is good, all of these kind of ideas. But I think the problem is, A, that doesn't distinguish between things that keep you busy that are worthwhile, that bring you joy, that bring value and meaning to your life and just stuff that society says you have to do, that you just say, okay, well, I guess I'll say yes to that. I'll say yes to that. I'll say yes to that. And before you know it, you're busy with a whole lot of stuff that might leave you feeling really worn down and really resentful about these obligations that don't actually make your heart sing, that don't actually speak to your purpose at all. And unless you really, I think, take a step back and think, what do I want to be busy with and what actually matters to me? then you just end up, you know, with a sort of societally prescribed list of things that other people want you to do, which is kind of not really a way to live your life. And overwhelmingly, the people that I spoke to for the book were telling me that this kind of left them with this feeling of being bogged down, like in quicksand and and frustrated that they could never just take a breath and read the nice novel they wanted to read or see the, the dear old friend they'd been meaning to catch up with for two months. So I think that's the problem with being meaninglessly busy. The other part of the busy is best narrative is that it actually excludes a whole lot of people. So like people who, you know, for reasons of perhaps they have care or responsibilities or they might have lived with disabilities or chronic illness, some people can't always participate in this kind of like nine to five plus overtime, busy, 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 working six different jobs, um, so much output. And I think that to buy into this idea that we humble brag about being busy because it's a good thing and that's the best thing you can be. It's quite exclusionary to people who's who don't want to and rightfully shouldn't measure their worth by their output. And I think it's quite damaging to just buy into that narrative without questioning it at all or see if that rings true to us individually. Yeah, I find that interesting. I think one of the things about busy that is also desirable, particularly for so many women, is there's almost status in being busy because it suggests you're in demand or you're somehow desirable or popular or needed or wanted. Like, I'm so busy. There's so many demands on my time because this person needs this and that person needs that. They all want to work with me. Like it is a kind of a popularity brag as well. It's just a more grown up version. I'm one of those people you just described who lives with chronic illness and for whom busyness is, well, it is still possible, but it's literally life-threatening to be that busy anymore. So I've had to carve out space to not be busy and I know you're a mum as well and that's the other kind of category of person that you mentioned as an example have you had to sacrifice your own desires to be busy to be able to be the kind of parent you want to be yes I have although in a way it's ended up being a blessing in the sense that I reached such a kind of crisis point of burnout and overwhelm that it really prompted me to think about, wait, is this serving me? All of this saying yes, all of this being busy. And as it turned out, a lot of it wasn't. And I've been lucky enough and to some extent done the work enough that I've been able to reform my life in a way that I still feel busy, but I feel busy with things that I want to say yes to rather than just a whole lot of stuff that other people say I should say yes to. I suppose to answer your question, the most kind of honest way to do it would be to come back to how I started writing this book, which is essentially when four months after I became a mum, I suffered this massive burnout. I have generalised anxiety disorder to begin with, but I found that 
after becoming a mum, I was still trying to say yes to the old parts of my life. So doing favours for people, you know, looking over people's pictures that they, you know, just kind of to help them out in, the, in a career sense when I was kind of supposed to be sleeping because my baby was sleeping. Yes, to trying to be the perfect breastfeeding new mum and do the sustainable nappy practices. Yes, to somehow styling my hair and putting it all up on Instagram and showing this gorgeous image of, you know, wholesome new motherhood going to career events, you know, saying yes to invites to the theatre a few days after my baby was born. I was just really doing too much. And I think trying to prove to, I don't know, to myself or just to other people that I could be this kind of mum who did it all and also had a career going and still had it going on. And basically ended up, it wasn't so much postnatal depression. I didn't feel depressed, but certainly on those scales, I ticked all the extreme boxes in the sense that I was just, I was so anxious and I was so completely depleted that I just... I remember stopping to my mum, like, I just want to walk into the ocean. I'm so tired. And we applied for sort of a baby sleep school, which made me fill in a scale of postnatal depression and anxiety. And they basically said, you are dealing with some mental health issues. And I think you should go into our perinatal mental health unit for a few days. So I ended up in a perinatal mental health unit. So basically like a psych ward for mums that they call a mum and baby unit. And it was really just five days of, it was mundane. It was, you know, this quiet little sort of psychiatric ward out in the suburbs in Melbourne. And it really forced me to slow down, get off my phone. They had a rule, you know, no phones on while the baby's around. So there was no scrolling Instagram, comparing myself to other people, checking work emails. And I think that that was almost a break or a wake-up call. Like, hang on, something's not working. You can't keep doing things at the pace you used to and saying yes to all these expectations. And then also bring yourself to this new role of being a parent as well. So I came up with the idea of the yes woman based on my own experience of that burnout and of being in that mental health unit and meeting all these other women who actually also had experienced burnout and anxiety and various other repercussions. Partly they told me because they struggled to put boundaries in and say no and they were perfectionists and people pleasers like myself. And then that, I suppose, was the original inspiration. And then I sort of went on a personal quest to work out, all right, how can I recalibrate? How can I work out what to say yes to so that my instinct to feel busy is still sated, but in a healthy way that is about what I want to do. And then I realised talking to other people that women, a lot of women had this urge and it became bigger than me. So while the book is hooked on my own personal experience, it's definitely a, a lot of research that I think will hopefully speak to a lot of other women's experiences as well. I'm so sorry that happened to you to begin with. It's the experience of so many new mothers, that feeling of overwhelm, disconnection to who you are, being unable to do everything, being able to please this new being that's come into the world who is frankly unpleasable. At the same time, I really like the idea of you rejecting the idea of being too busy by writing a book, which is just <laughs> about the busiest thing you can possibly do. Talk to me about putting boundaries in place. And let's start with the sort of social side of thing because things because I think sometimes putting boundaries in place in your personal and social life is almost harder than doing it in your work life because in the end, if there's a colleague or a distant networked person at work who sort of sits there thinking, oh God, I thought she'd do that. Why wouldn't she? How annoying. I can live with that. But the idea of a friend thinking I didn't help them out or a sister being annoyed that I didn't show up to her latest play or someone that I care about who I'm invested in. I feel like that's a much harder no to give. So how do we put those boundaries in around our social and personal lives? 
particularly, I suppose, outside of the pandemic, how we aren't running ourselves ragged every evening and every weekend doing things to please other people. I think you're completely right that a lot of women find it so difficult to say no to their friends and also to their family members. So one thing that came up again and again with the kind of 200-ish women that I surveyed and interviewed for this book was this absolute difficulty putting in boundaries with their family. So that might be, it's often like their own mum and dad, or it could just be, you know, a sister wants to babysit every weekend, or my best friend has asked me to do this thing and I really don't want to. I think there's a couple of things that can really help. The first is to come to terms with this idea that sounds really radical, but that saying no doesn't have to be, it's not actually aggressive. So a lot of women sort of feel that saying no is a declaration of war. It's like they, they, they say, oh, I'm scared of conflict, so I don't want to say no. And it's like, well, where did we get this idea that saying no is aggressive or is, is starting some sort of conflict rather than just assertively but politely saying what our capacity is, which is really what it, what it should be. So I think it's about learning the difference between assertive and aggressive, which, I mean, I do go into that in, in my book. But it's also about really easing into it. So one of the psychologists that I talked to called Nicole Perry in the book, and she's a feminist counsellor who talks a lot about sort of setting boundaries and shame resilience. And she was saying one of the hardest things is really knowing when you're ready to say no to family and friends because there's a lot of work that can go into really making sure that you're in a space where you will be able to deal with any pushback. You might also need to do some work around, like getting to know yourself and your own values. What do you actually want to say no to and there can be this struggle when you first start learning to say no where some people then go too far and sort of start saying no to everything because they're like oh I'm gonna I'm just gonna put my foot down and I'll just kind of like be really strict about this and I'm not gonna take it anymore and then they can kind of go a little bit too far and they get locked in this battle with themselves where they feel a bit guilty like oh should I was I just say no on the principle of it or did I even want to say no so I think you need to be be ready Nicole Perry says you don't have to like rush in straight away You can take your time. You can set small boundaries around making time for self-care and then work up to the 500th time you practice saying, no, it might be a proper like, all right, I'm going to have that difficult conversation with my stepfather or whatever it is. So I think that's the other one. But then I think also just accepting the principle that you're allowed to disappoint people. You're allowed to say no to even the most important people in your life. So your parents, who we often think of them as the ones who must be obeyed, to use a term of... Sarah Knight, who's a bit of a say no guru. She writes a lot about how to not give a F. I don't know if I'm allowed to swear. <laughs> and then also I interviewed Kate Lever in, in my book and she wrote The Friendship Cure. So she knows a lot about sort of friendship. But she's given a lot of thought to this. And she was saying that she would not support any school of thought that says that because someone's your dear friend, you have to agree to it everything they say or everything they ask of you. And she said actually a sign of a strong friendship and relationship is being able to to put boundaries in and you might occasionally say yes sir you might say okay fine I'll come to that gig with you even though I'm not that interested in that kind of indie rock but you might also say oh you know what I'm not into costume parties you you go to that one I'll come to the next one I can't help you today I'm not feeling up to it and that's fine so I think also just this radical idea that you can actually say no you can do it without being aggressive. You can do it assertively and it doesn't mean that you're declaring war. I love this idea and I like the idea of strong friendships having boundaries and when I think of the mates that I'm closest to, and I say this in the best possible way, they're the people I'm most willing to let down, <laughs> which sounds a bit silly because I don't, I, you know, I don't want to let down the people I love, but at the same time they're the ones who get it. 
they're the ones who, if I say, I, I can't do that, I'm not up to it, I've got to cancel at the last minute, or I just don't want to, or I don't like their company, can I skip that dinner? They're the ones who are going to like me anyway, even if I say something that's a little unpalatable. One of the chapters in your book looks at the beauty industry and beauty expectations and saying no to, I suppose, unreasonable beauty rules that are placed on a lot of us. One of the things I've said no to during the pandemic is jeans. I have just said no to jeans for almost 18 months now and moved exclusively to tracksuits and activewear. And I'm quite nervous. I'm genuinely nervous. Like I'm saying this like as a joke, but I'm genuinely nervous about when things one day go back to some semblance of normal and I have to wear grown up people clothes again. But even saying that, I say, hold on, I just said have to. Do I have to? So talk to me about the pressures that are put on women to look a certain way, to look so-called presentable and how we can say no to them in a way that maintains, I suppose, our reputation because there's a lot of pressure that comes with what we wear and how we look. Absolutely. And first, may I say, I love this idea of quitting jeans. I'm right there with you. (laughs) It's just like so liberating. And on a related note, I've got to say, I had these mixed feelings about the coronavirus-induced cancellation of my in-person launch event. So I was supposed to be having this, you know, launch I'd always dreamed of, hosted by readings books at the State Library of Victoria, and it was supposed to be, um, you know, I have like a special dress I bought and everything. And when everything went online, because obviously we're still in lockdown, I just had this, my first thought was, oh, that's so disappointing. And then I thought, there's a tiny bit of me that's a little bit relieved. I don't need to wear the dress. Like I'm actually six months pregnant at the moment. I was like, I would have felt... I still, even though I've quit high heels, I would have felt compelled to wear high heels just so I look my most dressed up. I would have felt compelled to, you know, get a manicure and all this kind of stuff that at the moment, because I'm like (laughs) just tired, deep in the pregnancy stuff, I just actually don't want to, but it's true. We still do feel compelled to. And there are, we do live in a society, like we don't live in a vacuum where we can just make decisions with no ramifications and no social conditioning around how we should look. We're constantly getting feedback on that. Of course we are. In terms of the kind of things that we are expected to say yes to, though, I do think that we're expected to say yes to a lot more beauty expectations that are a lot more intense than perhaps they might have been in previous generations, despite some progress we've made. So I talk a little bit in the book, The Yes Woman, about how in some aspects of the beauty industry and fashion industry, you know, have started to relax these really tight expectations they used to have around what is beauty. So, for example, beauty in Western society has always been very Eurocentric and it's always really idolised. Basically, white women, very thin women, it still it still does do those things. I think those problems are very live. But there are some stats showing that, for example, women on the front of magazine covers are a bit more diverse. But at the same time, we have a lot of research showing that actually the expectations in other ways are are very restrictive on a whole lot of women. So not only are we expected to be sort of thin, we still have this thinness ideal that you and I might have grown up with in, I don't know, the early 2000s or whatever. But now we also have this look that's being spooked by mostly kind of Instagram influencers, reality TV stars, and that's this kind of fitness inspiration look, which is still very, very thin, but it's also very muscular, very, very toned, which sounds really good and positive, but the research I've done and talking to academics who study the effect of, of this on body dissatisfaction among young women actually say, well, it is problematic because it's just another layer of this beauty standard that we have to add on. So you don't look at these inspiration images and think, oh, great, well, I have to get great lung capacity. You look at them and think, okay, so now I have to be thin and I have to have a six pack. 
And then on top of that, there's this new layer of like you have to have a curvy bum and curvy boob, but somehow also have this tiny waist. And there's new layers of kind of Kardashian-like makeup that we're sort of expected to do and contouring and the the eyelashes. And, you know, there's just some, there's a lot going on. And I'm not saying this to shame any women who choose to look that way or engage in some of those ideals, some of those things. You know, I've got my eyelashes done sometimes. Nothing wrong with it on an individual note. What I do take issue with is the fact that this has become almost the standard of anyone who's kind of got an Instagram influence, anyone who is kind of going to a formal in year 11 and looking at media around what is female beauty will have to fit into like all these different boxes, whereas a generation or two ago it might have been a slightly condensed list. So it's exhausting and I think also it's fed to us a lot more than it used to be because we can't just walk past the magazine, stand at Coles and go, okay, now I don't have to look at the media. (laughs) Now it's on our phones, which obviously bombards us 24-7 with instantly edited and editable photos. So it's hard to escape now. Yeah, I was playing around with one of those photo editing apps just the other day. I got this gorgeous photo of my son and I, like it was beautiful, except I had someone else's spit on my chin and I was like, okay, I'll get one of those apps and I'll just get rid of the spit, right? And I got so carried away so quickly. I was just like, oh, and I can do that. And I can make my neck longer and my teeth wider and my top lip thicker. And I can do this and this and this. And then I created this picture of me that was me. And it happened so quickly. And I'm not saying that to laugh at or talk down at anyone who enjoys using those apps because I get it. I absolutely get it. I mean, I use filters on my photos all the time because I look better in that version of me. But at the same time, it's so easy to get to the point where it's it's actually not you and realize that in my head, I'm starting to live in a world where everyone else looks like that all the time. And I only see myself up close and for real. And that yes. creates a really problematic comparison in, in your head. Like it can't be good for you living like that. And we all do. Yeah. And we know it's not good for us. If you look at all the stats on body dissatisfaction and feelings of self-esteem after scrolling through those images, we feel like crap about ourselves. There's some stat that 68% of adults do edit their photos before they show it to anyone or put on social media. God knows I use a filter. But then... Of course, because you're only looking at these highlight reels, you know, the one out of every thousand photo that someone's chosen to post after filtering and tweaking and all this stuff, of course you think, oh, well, maybe I look a bit ordinary. So, yeah, it's this problematic culture where we all are expected to market ourselves and optimise ourselves as if we're sort of like a brand, which is, of course, promoted by brands who actually do have something to sell. But then we all absorb it as our own kind of, it's like we all each have to have our own personal brand that has to be perfectly marketable, even though, you know, we're just a person living a life. You know, what are we trying to sell? The idea of waking up every morning and having to be Jamila Risby on Instagram sounds absolutely exhausting to me. Grace, it has been so lovely to chat. Congratulations on your book. I loved every minute of it. The Yes Woman is, I think, a really modern, sensible take on workplaces and the pressure we place on ourselves outside of them as mothers, as women, how we look and what we do. I think it moves us away from some of that kind of corporate culture of the feminist book that tells us how to be and dictates that there's only one way. You've created a lot of space for women to be who they want to be and do it in a way that is a little bit more peaceful and a little less busy. Thank you for being on Anonymous Was a Woman. Thank you so much for having me.
A huge thank you to Grace Jennings Edquist for being my guest on Anonymous Was a Woman Today. Astrid and I will be back in your feeds next Monday with Anonymous Was a Woman. In the meantime, if you want to make sure you never miss an episode, please follow us or subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. While you're there, why not leave us a rating and a review? I'd like to thank Hachette Publishing who have made this series of Anonymous Was a Woman possible. We thank them for their ongoing support and enthusiasm. I'd also like to thank Future Women and Bad Producer Productions for making today's episode. Bye. Bye.